Task Force members, we have another edition of the Thunderdome with Ari Matizak, the CEO of Repowering America. This one was recorded just before the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, which has lit up the energy industry and provided a lot of optimism for us all. Many of the topics discussed today were some of the catalyzing elements of what became of the new federal policy, and Ari has been a strong piece of that thought leadership leading up to the historic act. Make sure you're all following our Substack updates as we have lots happening from monthly meetups, even a surprise DER barge party in Red Hook coming up soon, as well as DER white papers, op-eds, and much more coming. James is going to take it away with this week's spicy quote. I said, Chuck, until we see the July inflation figures, until we see the July basically federal reserve rates, interest rates, then let's wait till that comes out. So we know that we're going down a path that won't be inflammatory to add more to inflation. He says, are you telling me you won't do the other right now? I said, Chuck, it's wrong. It's not prudent to do the other right now. Is that it? Yeah, does everyone know who that is? I mean, I'm gonna guess that's Manchin. That's our boy, Big Joe Manchin. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't I was gonna write, guess, was gonna guess Bolsonaro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired early. All right, we're 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 here with Ari. Oh my God, I didn't even check. Matusiak? Am I even saying that right? Yeah. It, All right, still, I did it right. It's still, still the name. Yeah. Nice. The CEO of Rewiring America. We are. You've you've entered the the Thunderdome, Ari. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but we we think you can handle it. So we're we're excited to have you on today, and uh, I think. Colleen is going yeah, to kick yeah, us off with a little get off. to know you, but absolutely. So Ari over here, we don't, we don't start off with like, where are you from? What do you love? We'll get there. But like, when did you get der pilled? What was the day we were like, DRs are getting us to where we need to go. Oh, and the answer is not like 90 seconds ago. Right. So, so I think, I think <laughs> or electrification build that would work too. I yeah. Mean, I, kind of I don't know. Was it like, was it, I don't know if it was, it, it was maybe he like our DER. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it was like neonatal perinatal. It was very early. It was very, very early on. <laughs> Still in the womb. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Was that like your, was he pumped your first word? No, no, but it, uh, DER wasn't either. But you know, it all. But it was all. It was all electric. It was all electric. Yeah, I love that. So I, I mean, I, I guess one question we, you know, I think we we heard from you previously that you were a bit of a, a car buff as a child. So when did mm. you transition from being a car buff to a to a heat pump buff? Well, I, I'm an I'm an electri- I'm an electrification buff. Yeah, I um... electrification buff. Yeah, which encompasses the cars. So it's like it's just it's just sort of growing the growing the pie. Yeah, I was an early car buff as a kid because my dad used to pretend like he was in the market for a new car and he's a psychologist so he has, you know, powerful mental powers that are very, you know, he can get people to to think what he wants them to think. So he would go to the dealers and get them to agree to let him take the car for the day and drive around. And then he would call me, my dad's Israeli, and he would say, Ari, right, stand outside, I'm coming down. And then you would hear this enormous engine uh, from blocks away as my dad came to pick me up. Now, in the electric future, I guess I wouldn't hear him from blocks away, but, yeah, was... but the ride would right. be cooler. 
So this is where you learned how to. Does that mean you have a a killer argument against people who like never want to give up like the, you know, the hum and feel of a, of a gas car or are you always going to have one like in your garage sitting under a, you know, a tarp that you you pull out on weekends or something, or are you you fully committed to only EVs in the garage? No, I'm fully committed. In fact, my, my dream is to own or like not really own because I don't want to have full responsibility, but to be like a, a part owner or a voyeur of a of an electrification resto mod shop, you know, where basically like classic cars roll up <laughs> and get swapped out with the with the electric drivetrain, and I can just Wait. be there doing you know whatever. It is watching it all happen. This is just uh, like holding a wrench, maybe not participating. Yeah, just, like yeah, well, yeah, yeah, or just yeah. like you know. What, wait, so what would be what would be your like the car you would like to see electrified? The classic car? Because I have an answer. Oh, for this, well, I have a I good wanna, I want to hear yours. First. I have a good one for this. Yeah, I have a good one for this. It's actually personal because my, my father in law has a 1966 Mustang that is not running and is sitting in the garage. And it is first on the list to get the full treatment. So I think. <laughs> That would be pretty sweet. The pilot case. Yeah, exactly. The pilot case. I've always thought 80s Porsche 911, big whale tail, all black. That's what I want an electric version of. Yeah. No airbags. No autonomous. No, you can't. None of that. No, no. you don't need the airbags. You don't need the airbags when you're going that fast, Duncan. (laughs) (laughs) It's for track only, you know. Not doing really good. Wow, I love it. You're you're all in. It's it's great. I know. It's great. I was gonna say, so so what's what's the last job you wanna have? I mean, is it is it this converting old cars to electric vehicles? Is it Yeah, after rewiring America? Is there an intermediary step or what? Like we fully electrified, you're like, let me go do this. Oh yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's good. Um, I feel like it's hard to. It's hard to. Well, you know, maybe maybe I would be like a. I kind of want to be like a player coach. You know, like I I want to I want to coach the kids team, but also like be the guy who's like running along the sidelines and dangerously close to being on the field. Like I think that's a good that's a good intermediary step. You know, feel like I contribute, but really just so be th- like a cheerleader. This is like after the electrification battle is won. Like, what what year is this then? Like I guess that finally yeah, those are like my, or my like... great grand my great grandkids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the anyway, yeah. I like. I still want to be ambulatory. I want to be ambulatory. So it's like it's good. It's like a good vision to hold on to. It works. I love that. I love that. And so, what? Tell us like something that you do outside of rewiring America that that you're sort of passionate about energy, energy or not energy? Uh, well, I do, I do have the answer that relates to the kids. I have an eight year old and a five year old, both girls. This is their electrification strategy is behind me in case you didn't know about <laughs> the true direct air capture technology that's out there. Those are unicorns that eat carbon dioxide. I, and so I was going to say, uh, that's that what everybody else like is proposing. Yeah, yeah. Like so a... these are, these are, so, so this is Can actually, hire them? think about, yeah. When you think about CDR and DAC, this is it right here. Um, yeah. And yeah. So, what's the difference? Um, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. I mean, the the unicorns I think are more effective because they can go more places <laughs> than the than the like stationary solutions that are out there uh, or being worked on. Um, 
Love so it. so I spend I spend a lot of time I spend a lot of time chasing after them and uh, and it's good and it's actually one of the one of the amazing things about about how life changed with the pandemic is that it's a lot easier to be you know the office is upstairs it's sort of like a it's a much more yeah. you don't have the distance that you normally would so so that's been great I love it well so before we uh, that now the time important to, stuff to is start out of the to way. dig in yeah. Um, so we want to bring Rewiring America into the Thunderdome. But first, maybe just give us the two-minute version of what it is. I feel yeah. like most people listening know already, but for anyone who might not. Yeah, Rewiring America is a, a startup nonprofit. We, were started in the, we started in the summer of 2020. And quite simply, we're focused on electrifying everything that can be electrified in the economy as the most direct and most participatory way to tackle the climate crisis. Uh, it was co-founded by Saul Griffith, Alex Lasky, and myself. And we had really kind of a first through a bunch of Saul's research a, that he was, he was given a grant by the Department of Energy in 2018, had been working on this for quite a while, a very granular sort of analysis down to 0.1% of energy flows in the economy from generation to consumption. And the unpacking of that sort of led to a number of different conclusions, among them that the decisions that folks make at their kitchen tables about what kind of cars they drive, how they heat the air and water in their homes, how they cook their food, how they dry their clothes, accounts for 42% of our energy-related emissions. And, you know, historically, we have had quite a lot of climate policy conversation that happens on the supply side. That is like, you know, how we're going to transform the grid. Or we talk quite a lot about technological innovation where someone who's brilliant is going to invent something that's going to save us all from ourselves. Or we talk a lot about adaptation and sacrifice because we're not going to get it done. And so our lives are going to have to change. And Rewiring America is really based in a demand side view of electrifying all the machines that we use in our day to day lives. Um, that being first and foremost, the climate must do if we want to have a shot at staying inside of one and a half degrees warming, but also a way to tie into the 70% of Americans who say that they care a lot about climate, but have been left out of the conversation because they haven't had a way to participate. And so for us, Rewiring America is really an organization focused on market transformation, first and foremost, to make it so that the efficient electric machine is the most affordable and convenient one to purchase and install in the market. Uh, so that's the transformation piece. But it's also really about a, building a political movement where um, everyone sees themselves in accomplishing and effectuating that market transformation. And, and by enlisting them in that, we actually accelerate, accelerate to the reality that we need to get to so that, you know, I can move on to the rest of my shop. I, I think that is like the first <laughs> thing we want to get into here, right? I mean, it, there's, there's sort of a, there's, I'd say a a camp out there that says the the work that's going to get us toward whether it's climate action energy transition etc is going to be that some people refer to as like the slow boring you know it's like the work of politics that's sort of incremental behind the scenes the things which you know just sort of align a handful of the right stakeholders and nobody's really aware of that perhaps ruffles the least feathers and what rewiring america is proposing is very very different you said the word participatory like six times and 
I don't think we've really done that yet before, right? We haven't experimented with, you know, you think of like the ITC or like California uh, Solar Initiative, although that maybe was participatory. You know, these early things were kind of, you know, abstract and often in the distance. Rewiring America saying, no, you, your home, your family, you will be both participants and beneficiaries of all of this. And that's why you should support it. Can you talk about a little, a little about that? Was that a, a, a clear choice to you that you had to frame this around? Did it just sort of emerge? Where, where'd that come from? Yeah, very much a clear choice. I mean, partly a clear choice just because the math tells us it has to be right. Like if we have 121 million households in the United States and a billion machines that need to be replaced or installed over the next 20 years, we basically need to be electrifying 500,000 homes a month over that time span. And we maybe are doing, I don't know, 500 right now. We're pretty far away from where we need to be. So there's sort of a, there's just kind of an imperative to this that doesn't leave quite a lot of option in a sense. And, and you're talking about stuff that is, you know, a billion machines equals a billion decisions across, you know, a hundred million plus decision makers and, and also related to purchases that people don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis. I've yet to meet someone who says, I can't wait when that new heat pump is coming out because I'm totally upgrading. That's just not how people <laughs> think about their lives. They think about taking a hot shower, having keeping their home, their family warm and safe and all the rest. And then if something goes wrong, then that needs to be dealt with. And so the just the nature of the of the number of market decisions and the kind of the fragmentation of those decisions almost requires as a strategy kind of a participatory construct. But it is also in, in our view, you know, a, over long past due that we start to put people in the center of the climate conversation and position them as beneficiaries of the future. And so, you know, we have, well, I know we're going to get into this because you started with the quote, but Senator Manchin's quote that you read at the top is all about like waiting for inflation to ease up which is the most ironic comment that one could make yeah. since the way to tackle inflation is actually by electrifying the machines in people's lives, which is actually about tackling the climate crisis. And so strategically, there is a convergence that needs to happen between these things that have been siloed in people's minds on a policy basis. Oh, climate is over here. Kitchen table economics are over here. And then showing people that if they are the customers of the climate solutions, their lives are going to be better. Um, and the EV is a great example of this, right? People are buying EVs in part because they're just better cars and they're gonna be better. And once you do that, you don't say like, wow, I can't wait to get an internal combustion engine car next. That's not sort of the thing that happens. Unless it's to rip out the engine and put some batteries in. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> cool. Yeah, well, yeah, that, it's, it's, I don't know, that, that whole sort of framing is what's always struck me most about rewiring America. It feels refreshingly, uh, yeah, participatory. Yeah. And participatory and also, I think, like, thinking with that framework of abundance, because, you know, you, utility incentive programs that are downstream incentive programs for more efficient equipment has existed for some time, but it's never, I won't say never, but it's frequently done from this perspective of like, save yourself a little bit of money. Maybe like sometimes there's some conversation around improved comfort, but it's, it's usually like 
save a little bit of money, like do something good versus really drastically improve your life. Um, now that can be the result of a lot of those things, but that's not usually like how it's pitched and sold. So I think, yeah, Ari, I guess would be like curious, like how you guys sort of see maybe what program, like utility level programs have existed in the past and like how you change the, the name of, of how to think about that. From the customer well, I, it, that's a, that's a great question to just come back to the market fragmentation for a second, you know, the utility program example is an important one because they are sort of machine-based incentives typically, right? Like you can get, whether it's for energy efficiency or for like a electrification event, you know, we'll give you a certain amount of money or rebate if you get a low flow shower head, or if you get a heat pump, or if you get a, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And, and that's good. Like we need rebates to bring down the cost, but it doesn't create sort of like a holistic understanding about what is effectively rewiring someone's home, changing the operating system from being a fossil fuel operating system to an electric operating system. And, and that's actually, I think, a very important part of the puzzle that we need to solve because again you have fragmented decisions over time like i buy an ev this year four years later my water heater goes out the next year i get solar then my furnace conks out then i decide to get a stove you know that's happening over a long period of time or you know i was going to do all those things but my job changed and we moved and so we left and we had to go to a different house and now i'm starting the journey over again in this new house and people are moving into the one that i just left and they they are going through it so a big piece of this is really to take one of those events that happens that electrification event and set it up so that it enables and facilitates the rest of them to happen the way I like one way I like to think about this, and we talked a little bit about this the other day, is that like if you get an EV and you're going to upgrade the breaker box in your home and to do the EV charger, at the same time that that happens, we should be incentivizing you to put a 240 volt outlet where the water heater and the furnace are. Because as soon as that happens, now the friction is removed for when the furnace conks out for you to get a heat pump. And you should get a heat pump because now you can back it up with the car that's in the driveway or the garage. And that's a big, but that, that if we don't sort of like solve those kind of points of friction for customers, mm -hmm. it becomes very hard for them to overcome it on their own because this is not something that's top of mind for folks on a day in and day out basis. You know, something I think about very related to that, you were talking about this like cascade of decisions. I think something people underweight is that the economics get better as you go down that cascade, yeah. right? If you first get rid of your gas dryer and then your stove and then your water heater, maybe you get an EV so your electricity goes way up and then you do your heat pump. With each of those decisions, your gas fixed charge sticks around, right? So you're like effective blended gas rates going up as you remove gas demand, improve, you know, fixing some of the, the economic problems or challenges maybe with like full-blown electrification. So if you can get people started on the journey and make it easier, it actually gets easier and easier, <laughs> right? To like make these yes. things pencil. Yeah. 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 And this, the second piece of that is on the, the, the uh, I forget what you call them on the Rewiring America website, but I read the span one where, you know, if you do the EV and the heat pump first, you're probably gonna have to upgrade your, your electrical service, but 
if you do like solar and a battery at the same time or a span at the same time, you may not need that upgrade. And so it is it is interesting. Uh, we were actually joking on on the last episode with with Andy Frank from Sealed that there should be like a scale microgrids and and sealed partnership so they're getting like the full solution at once um I do, it does seem like sunrun is kind of heading in that direction with say or even sonova as well having solar batteries and evs but i haven't seen the heat pump come into that equation yet which i think is a, is a really interesting one that that sealed is kind of kind of spearheading so yeah it's 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 that kind of idea of the the whole home i think is is super interesting any, I mean, but to be honest, like even going through that, that's like a, a lot to wrap. Like even some Ooh. of our listeners listening to that section will be like, wait, what the panel upgrade? Like, wait, what's going on? All these connecting all these dots and kind of tying back to Colleen's earlier point about the, the, the messaging around savings and stuff like that. What I think is, is really interesting that Rewiring America is introducing. Maybe this is more focused on the political end of the spectrum, but like, for example, your Electrify for Peace plan, which we'll get into, um, you know, you guys are talking about home resilience. For one, a lot of customers are experiencing outages. You're talking about stopping inflation. You're talking about, which which people feel acutely as well. And you're talking about even like American energy independence, right? And and, and that's like, a, obviously a point of, I could maybe even drive a buying decision like you're getting a made in america heat pump like something something like to that effect so do you do you think about those narratives like only on the kind of hey we got to go get bipartisan support and we're, we're going to go kind of explain the full benefit there or something i've been thinking a lot lately is i do think customers would understand is like yeah even if solar is just going to make you break even you're locked for 20 years like you don't care if if Russia invades like Ukraine, if, if anything crazy happens like with with some other adversary abroad, like you're you're good to go, and you're gonna protect your pocketbook, not just not just save it. Um, so is is that kind of like a conscious decision on the consumer side of things too, or is it is it more just kind of on the political side of the spectrum? Yeah, I think I think it is a consumer. I think it is a, an available set of narratives for consumers. And you know, one of the things we've been looking at, there's been polling that's been done since uh, Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine. And obviously, that is a, a tragedy of of incredible scale. It is. It has as a sort of a bit of a byproduct jolted people's awareness of how volatile and unstable fossil fuels are how uh, basically how insecure they are by being dependent on fossil fuels and so as a result americans are much more interested in a low carbon future than they were even six months ago because it's now like the connective tissue has been kind of established and and i i think then you were gonna have you're gonna have people make different decisions, buying decisions for different reasons, of course, like no one make, there's not one, there's not a uniform sort of buying principle associated with these kinds of things. Um, there will be a sub subset of folks, you know, who listen to your podcast who are climate motivated and they want to do the right thing by the climate. There are other people who will be savings motivated, other people who will be frankly, American independence motivated, people who will be personally freedom motivated, right? Like they don't want someone in their, in their way or, or dictating when they can have what they want. And so to, to us, the power of electrification is that it's, it actually connects to all of those personas and narratives. And it is, I think you used Duncan a, a bit ago, the idea of the politics of abundance, which is getting much more discussion of late. But that 
you know, abundance is a thing people tend to like. Um, and it's also very American, right? America <laughs> yeah. does well when we think big. America does well when we feel like we're unencumbered. We don't like people telling us what we can and can't do. That's sort of not how we roll. And so I think the power of electrification is it is precisely not an adaptation and sacrifice narrative. So much so, actually, that, you know, one of the first EVs that's coming out into the market, you know, in terms of the mainstream manufacturers is a Hummer, right? Which is a 10,000 pound car. Uh, it has nothing to do with like, you know, going small, right? It's no. kind of an amazing vehicle. Or conservation. It's, it's so no, inefficient. Right. It's, yeah, exactly. It's so incredibly inefficient that they just had to solve it with more batteries like six times. And now the battery pack yeah, is like and a thousand horsepower. You know, yeah. It's... <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Well, I have one more narrative I want to... So you talked about, yeah, like there's some people who are concerned about the climate, some people who like independence and freedom and abundance and all this stuff. There's one other classic American narrative that I think electrification could tie into and I think is really powerful, but it's a li little more contentious maybe in the political arena, which is America loves to punch up, right? America loves taking on incumbents like underdogs, all of this, right? And implied an energy transition and electrification is, is some creative destruction, right? But it's harder to in the political sphere, like align the right stakeholders, if that's kind of part of your, your stamp. What, what do you think there? Is that part of this? Is that maybe just something people can feel, but you, we don't advertise? Are you pitching why we named our company David Energy after <laughs> David and Goliath? Or is that, Perhaps, is yeah. that... <laughs> but what do you, what do you think there? Is it, cause I, I think it's powerful, but I do see it as challenging if, if going to DC. Well, I, so I think what's happening, and I'm not the sort of the original author of this statement, but I think what's happening over the next 20 years is if we do this right, is the greatest transfer of wealth from energy producers to consumers, right? Um, and that is like, you're basically empowering all of the Davids against the handful of Goliaths. Um, wow, I love it. And, and, and I think that's, I think that is a very important narrative, but I think it's also a very, um, it's a very important sort of response to what has become an increasing amount of uh, structural inequality in our society, right? You have people who yeah. are struggling more, working harder, making less. And this is why the inflation sort of moment that we're in is a nine out of 10 issue because 50% of Americans don't have $400 to deal with an emergency expense. And so you have, you have people who are structurally, frankly, living on the margin in our society, which is unacceptable, quite frankly, because it's the wealthiest society in the history of the world. And yet 50% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency expense. And, and those people, by the way, many of them are paying 15, 17% of their take home pay on energy bills. So it's like having another tax on your income that is like a fossil fuel tax. And so if you start to think about it as a wealth transfer back to people, back to consumers and basically saying, you know what, you don't need to spend that money on this. You can put it to work in whatever way makes the most sense. Add some more money to your savings account, take your kids to, to that activity you were wanting to take them to, 
go out for dinner as a family, obviously that all has cascading beneficial effects on the economy overall. But we are basically funneling dollars to a few instead of sort of recirculating those dollars among the many. Um, yeah. And that is what I think the true power of this is. And I'll just say one more thing. I know I'm drawing out, droning on. If electrification is sort of like an outcome, we will triple, maybe even quadruple electricity demand in the United States. The United States yeah. uses 100 quads of energy as an economy, which, you know, is a lot. In the tripling, quadrupling of energy, of electricity, excuse me, that will happen through electrification, we will cut in half the amount of energy that we use as an economy. So we will go from 100 quads to 50 quads. And if you just like wrap your head around that for a second, America is still producing the same GDP. It's still producing the same amount of jobs, but it is running that the number one economy in the history of the world on half of the energy, which necessarily means that more money is being kept in the pockets of citizens. That's very powerful. I mean, and that's incredibly yeah. deflationary as well, right? Just like a much yeah. more yeah. efficient economy. Yeah. So before, I'm sorry, just before we move off the narrative thing, and I, we will, and we'll, we'll roll into like the actual ins and outs of the politics here. But there is, I, you know, I think we, we did talk about this and we'll, we'll probably come back to it, but this sort of like populist nature of everything that we're talking about. But the dominant narrative today is actually that frankly, like a lot of clean energy solutions are somewhat elitist, right? And that like, usually it's wealthier neighborhoods that can afford solar or like an EV. And I can understand, you know, we have to be kind of cognizant of the danger that I've heard some pushback in, in today is like, I'm feeling inflation now and not everyone can go install a heat pump. And so right. this all sounds great, but like, isn't it a 10 year from thing that like, that doesn't mean we don't have to move just as fast, if not faster today. But I, I do tend to think that when these energy crises rear their head, it's because of, you know, bad decisions we made like 10 years ago, right? Or, or, or good ones if we avoid them. But um, so kind of how do you think about like that, that balance where, you know, a lot of this is kind of hardening for the future, but to what extent can it help today? And then, and then how do you manage the kind of the balance between those two things? Uh, it's a great question. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you think about the responses that have happened to the current crisis, things like releasing from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, you know, like increasing sort of like lease approvals of leases or whatever the case might be to mm -hmm. allow for more drilling to happen. Those things do not cascade immediately through the economy, right? And a yeah. number of those things are structural decisions that actually double down on fossil fuel infrastructure. And, is, and every single time you make one of those decisions, you are locking in the same volatility that is producing the effect that we're experiencing right now. So right. at some point, you do need to make a set of medium-term decisions vis-a-vis -vis the transition that needs to happen. So that's one thing to say. There is like a choice point that is a, that is a, there is a fork in the road that needs to get sort of like the, where the right answer, which is electrification needs to just get taken. And you need to start making those commitments. And the more commitments you make, the easier it is to make the incremental commitment on top of that and the more progress you start to see. So that's sort of one thing to say. That's obviously not like, it's not like flipping a switch. It's not gonna happen all at once. So, so yeah. how do you deal with the sort of the needs of people right now? Well, 
of course, people aren't all going to be able to go out and buy heat pumps. And this is, and those who are most impacted by inflation are the ones who are the least, you know, sort of like least empowered to make some of the just like consumer purchasing decisions that would facilitate relieving the pressure on their, on their pocketbooks. But that's where policy should be stepping in. That's exactly right. why we should be doing things like passing the climate provisions to give people sort of the, the means in order to make that transition. And that is also a choice that we have in front of us to make. And the last thing that I would just say, and this is from a climate perspective, and I think it's really important that we all sort of like anchor to this, is the planet could, could not care less whether you are rich or poor vis-a-vis -vis the emissions coming off of your furnace. It's just counting the emissions and booking them. And so it really does become sort of a, a strategy where we have to think about next water heater up, next furnace up, and everybody yep. needs to be participating in that. And so from my perspective, if we do this right, electrification should be the most equitable approach in climate because the climate imperative is to catch all of these machines as they go out and to ensure that they're not being replaced with new fossil fuel infrastructure. Yeah. You're, the first, well the first thing you said, I feel like uh, the summary of it is basically like sometimes if you've been on a real bender, you got you to gotta taper, but other times you got to detox, <laughs> you know, and like which one you pick depends on the situation. But then on the yeah. second point you said, yeah. I, I love this point. Like yeah. I always talk about this, that energy transition really implies shifting from OPEX to CAPEX. Right. It's about like building yeah. stuff and then not having to pay for energy after. But yeah, inherently, like there's there are structural issues there with regard to like availability of capital. And yeah, it just seems really important to kind of figure that out. Right. And there, there's problems. Right. There really are like credit score is a huge issue for people, things like this. So if if we could help distribute it, distribute that better, I think that would get people pretty excited because it is challenging to like you know, say replace my furnace with gas X, replace my furnace with heat pump 1.3 X. You're like, uh, right. so I don't know what, when you don't have that $400 emergency. Yeah. And right. then all of those things are more than $400. You're already talking about, you know, even with the best of incentives, like you're still going to be putting in some capital unless you can figure out credit issue and have an energy as a service model. Yeah. But it, I think that is an important point. Like it is a lot of a credit issue, credit worthiness issue, not a cost issue, right? Like a lot of yeah. these are solutions. Yeah, are financing money, fixes this, but it's, yeah. you know, someone has to come in and bank it for five, 10 years. And, and so it's, that's, that's where the sort of divide actually comes in, I think. And to Ari's point, like where policy can play a role. <laughs> right. I, that, so that's, I think that's right, because the look, all of these problems, when we're talking about sort of macroeconomic transitional issues, they're all they're all challenging. Right. There isn't like a you can't you can't gloss over like you can't pretend like it's not a difficult set of policy issues to consider. But embedded in each of them are a series of choices that we get to make about how we address them. And I guess my point is only that, you know, when it comes to things like addressing inflation, there is inherently a choice, which is one version of the choice is to say, wow, inflation and half of that is coming from energy prices. I guess what we should do is not do the climate provisions. Um, that's one cho That's one version of a, of a response. <laughs> 
another version of a response would be like, wow, inflation, half of the, half of it's coming from energy prices. Let's incentivize people to yeah. uh, to electrify so they can structurally start saving money and not have to be so on the on, you know, so at risk. And brief, what was it? Einstein, he was a smart guy, right? Said insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same yeah. results. Like yeah, another way of saying yeah. it is doubling down on the fossil fuels is just setting us up for, yeah, the inflation is going to come around again. Like we saw this back in the seventies. We've seen, you know, it happened multiple times since. And until we actually make that decision, it's the next one won't happen once we're able to do that. Yeah. I, I guess think that's a great way of framing it. I guess that's not even tapering. That's just like going hard the next day. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like yeah. Just yeah, like, waking yeah. up and yeah. cracking up a new just one. Keep on partying, <laughs> Garth. Yeah, yeah. Like you just save off the hangover by just yeah. continuing to drink. Yes. Yeah, it it still comes. It still comes. Yeah. yeah, I definitely. I met some people in college who had that who had that strategy. It's you know, it's like it works. I guess for a short it, period. It of works time. for a while. Yeah, yeah until it doesn't. Uh, in, but it inevitably, <laughs> inevitably, yeah, yeah. So we've been talking a little bit about you know inflation and and energy independence. I think we've touched on on some of this, but I, you know, you all came out with this electrify for peace plan, right? to really sort of figure out how do we bolster American manufacturing and labor and really pivoting and pitching it in the context of reducing reliance on international energy sources, obviously in this case, especially Russia, uh, and creating sort of energy security in the U.S. And I know we touched a little bit on this in the narratives, but I do think that it's a very strategic, I mean, from my perspective, looking in, it feels like a very strategic positioning to say like we have this big like we know we have this big climate problem, we also have these other problems. Like we have a solution that solves both of them, but we're not talking about climate in this perspective. And it reminded me a lot of like when I meet people who are different politically than me, and I just start talking to them about why we should why the, the U.S. should be great at solar and they should care about solar and want to invest in solar because like don't they want us to be the best? And it's always like a very successful conversation. Everyone's always like all in on solar by the end of it. How they would feel about the oxen solar trade case is maybe a different conversation. We won't go there. <laughs> but I guess like <laughs> we'd probably have different opinions there. But um, but I guess just like thinking about it, you know, you guys have obviously like positioned this in a very specific way and and had a lot of real success in in I think you know pushing that Defense Production Act to include a lot of a lot of this sort of heat pumps and domestic manufacturing support. So why, how, I guess, how did you make the decision to position it the way you did? And do you think it was like, in, was it ex omitting climate as a discussion, as a main discussion point, like part of the strategy? So um, I have a lot of things in once. I have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, like any, any good plan, Electrify for Peace, for Peace has uh, three parts. So the, if you don't have, if you don't have a three part plan, then, <laughs> Uh, who are you? Yeah, who are you? Right. You can't have like a six part plan. You could, yeah, be, you, know, you also can't have a two part plan. So, um, it's like a good move. Uh, so, yeah. the, yeah. So, um, 
so Electrify for Peace has has three parts. First, as you mentioned, Colleen is invoking the Defense Production Act to, to manufacture heat pumps in, in particular, but the rest of these sort of electric machines here at home. The idea being to for us to control our, our energy future by having the productive capacity in the United States and not be dependent on supply chains elsewhere. Second piece is training up the workforce so that we can install these machines. Um, idea being, in that case, to send Americans over to Europe to help them install heat pumps, training them up so they can come back and participate in seeding that market here in the United States. And then the third is to pass those climate provisions, the, these subsidies and incentives to help buy down the cost of these machines so that they can be affordable to Americans to actually create that market. Um, that's Electrify for Peace, and that was the plan that we put out in really the week after Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, and the reason why we put that out was because, A, we felt it was the right thing to do. But B, you know, frankly, recognizing the convergence of energy security policy and climate policy. And I started to worry that I, I started to think about it as like a, we, ha we were at this junction where we were either going to take a decade step backward on our climate trajectory because the resulting sort of solution would be, you know, fossil fuels, or we had an opportunity to accelerate our progress toward our climate sort of solutions because there was this like recognition about how like the shocks of the Putin invasion on energy markets and prices created sort of an opportunity to sort of connect in. And, and, you know, quite frankly, like also, I and mean, we talked a little bit about this earlier, you know, just the, it is not a good strategy to be dependent on Vladimir Putin. Like we should not have to be to succumb as Americans to the whimsy of Petra's state dictators a world away and, and, and be kind of on edge about what's happening geopolitically when it comes to just like making ends meet every month. That is not, that does not make sense to me. And so, and so for us, we felt like, well, here we go. Like we should be pushing in on this, on this idea because it's the right set of policies for all the reasons. And so yep. that was why we put that out. And actually, I guess, so one of the things that I think we, you know, Duncan James and I have sort of talked a little bit about before, and I'd be curious how, how you guys think about this from an electrification standpoint, is our reliance on other like rare earth metals, mm -hmm. I think, to, or like in lithium and where the, the, you know, those are primarily coming from like Russia, China. And how, I guess, how do we think about like energy independence under an electrification regime? Obviously, we can do a lot more at home and we don't we aren't as reliant on like a day-to-day -day perspective. Burn the minerals every time you use them. So You don't burn yeah. the minerals every time <laughs> yeah. you use them, exactly. So like in terms of new construction, there's maybe issues, but it's maybe a little bit more varied time. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the difference. Maybe I answer my own question, but I'd be curious like how you think about that reliance and, and where we go in the future if we're fully electrified. Well, I, it's a great question, and I don't, I don't pretend to have all the answers to that. But I do think there is. It comes back a bit to what is the, um, what is the strategic direction we're committing to as an economy, and you know, you kind of think about it like just to go like the car, the cars have been been a bit of a theme of this conversation. But if you think about <laughs> the the car companies, you know, one of the reasons why the 
the GMs and the Fords, et cetera, are all moving to all electric is because there's a huge market to go get and an opportunity. Another reason, in my view, is that it's really hard to run two car companies. Um, you know, it's like that's a different car company, the electric car company, than the internal combustion engine car company. Yeah. And so if we're sort of when you if you think about it vis-a-vis -vis the energy supply chain, if we are if we're running two supply chains, an, a fossil fuel supply chain and an electrified supply chain, that is complicating to how we make investments, how we allocate capital and how we problem solve. If we decide, however, to make the the pivot and commit to investing in the electrified supply chain, I think it starts to um, it's the same sort of idea. It starts to unlock um, the solution sets that are going to be some combination of partner selection, like trading partner selection. We're not going to be an isolationist country. We're going to have trade. Um, investments that we make here at home and innovation on the materials and recycling side to sort of keep and be able to reuse those those minerals and materials as they are put into into production and and to use and we're seeing kind of like that's as an example we're seeing that on the recycling of batteries as a for instance and so um so I'm not trying to minimize the like the significance of the question, certainly, or the comp or the complexity of the of the of the response. But I think it is partly yeah. complicated by us not making a choice. Right. So on that on that note, that, you know, as a, with regards to like the actual Electrify for Peace plan, I was actually so I was surprised to see that first part manufacturing of heat pumps coming in at like 600 million for five years, and I think. The Defense Production Act said up to 900 million, but it did include solar as well. So it sounds like that could address heat pumps. But when you talk about like solar storage, uh, electric vehicle, like rare earth metals, all those supply chains, like not I hope this isn't taken the wrong way. But like the 900 million with the Defense Production Act is, is not going to probably won't get us there. Right. And so, you know, just because you've you mentioned having read The Age of Electron, where one of the points I make is, you know, really the structure of the U.S. dollar is a huge issue in actually onshoring what, you know, it gives us access to cheap solar and batteries today, like deploying, which is great because we can deploy a lot of these cheap solar. But because essentially the dollar being the global reserve currency strengthens the dollar against other currencies, it makes those imports cheap and affects our ability to manufacture at home. So there's this huge tension between those two things. And I wonder, you know, to what extent have you, you know, is there like a policy solve around this? Like, like how, how would you approach not just the, the 900 million we got say to bring home heat pumps, but like we really, what you're talking about and like trading partners and everything is a structural reorientation of how America does business with the world. Um, and, that's like a, a much taller order. And I, I'd love to hear like any sort of steps we can, we can take in that, that direction or if it'll just sort of naturally happen as, as we make that choice, as, as you call it. Um, well, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think, I guess I would say a couple of things. Um, one, I don't, I don't think we're going to have like we're not going to have an all onshore, all offshore kind of future state, right? There's right. going to be some right. some blending and combination. I know that's what you're suggesting, but I do think that the 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 market momentum of the United States being, in essence, the number one or number two market for all of these goods, 
then begs a question of how much of that we want to sort of quote unquote own here at home. Um, right. And the way I sort of think about it is because there's also sort of another side to this, which is like, what's the export market look like for the United States? Um, and how do we start thinking about, you know, our export philosophy vis-a-vis -vis these machines? Because we have an export philosophy. We invested quite heavily in an export philosophy with respect to fossil fuels, right? We built um, right. LNG terminals. We have like, we have very much committed to that. And that didn't exist 20 years ago, right? That, or at least not at the same kind of scale. That was a a set of decisions that was made to create that sort of connective tissue between U.S. product and the rest of the world. I don't, so I, I think there is like a, it, it, it is a little bit of a question in my mind of how do we want to play in the global markets vis-a-vis -vis these machines and to start thinking about the machines as part of the kind of the energy economy as it were, right? So instead of thinking about molecules that were that were like pushing around and like getting onto barges or putting in pipelines or whatever else to think about like heat pumps as sort of part of the, a part of what we're pushing around and sending to other places and that's a decision that we have to make you know quite frankly yeah. and and that becomes like that's a nexus of you know you mentioned monetary policy that's sort of its own it's its own kind of kettle to sort of deal with but there's also quite a lot of industrial policy associated to that and and the 900 million is no it is totally insufficient we need to be making a bigger bet but if that sort of but but the thing about the defense production act is that it's not tied to the 900 million it is this it is a statement of of the these of these products i.e heat pumps being a national security priority for the country which starts to have cascading effects. It reorders the supply chain and says, you know what, those chips, they go to the heat pumps before they go to the, to the food processors. Um, and it starts to become sort of like a mechanism that we can keep reinvesting in over time because the, because the policy is there as sort of a, a signal that it's a, that it's a priority. I, I love that you're basically, you know, at the end of the day, like you keep reinforcing this point, which I think is so true, is that this is a choice that we actively make, right? We made a choice to invest in exporting fossil fuels or structuring the dollar as we did or, you know, offshoring manufacturing. And, and we can make choices across monetary policy and all these other areas to to make a different, you know, we can make a different choice. It's not just like, oh, that's the market and, and, you know, we're left to the winds of fate or something like that. So that's, it's super encouraging to hear. Yeah. yeah. So when I, so I, I've been thinking about electrification a lot lately, more so through my work, which is exposed to a lot of EV fleets. So folks buying buses and trucks and stuff that are electric. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, therefore just kind of thinking about it broadly and, one of my biggest concerns is the cost of electricity and the potential for it to not fall as far as it should fall, right? Wind and solar, whether on-site or utility scale, are amazing in that they can dramatically reduce the cost of electricity. But what we're seeing is that consumers aren't really experiencing that, right? Like, we'll, we'll see, you know, all this solar and wind get installed. It's producing ridiculously low LCOE electricity. And the, but however, their blended utility rate is, is not, it's the same, it's higher. So the economics aren't improving as you'd think they would, as our electric system becomes better and cheaper. I think this has a lot to do with our delivery infrastructure, but there's a lot of yes. potential reasons for this Gas as peakers. well. 
um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, that's that's a price, big one. They set so. the they set the clearing <laughs> price. Like, there's a lot of that's stuff. Right. Like, there's a lot of ways to look at this, but to me, this is like the the weak point, <laughs> right? Like, if we can't wrangle electricity prices, and I'm not saying we're at crisis points or anything like that right now, but if we were to wind up in a much more sort of negative place, a lot of this stuff starts to kind of fall apart because then it really does become about like begging someone to do it, make this decision because it's better for the planet. Um, one, do you share that? I won't call it a concern, but do you share visibility of that, that sort of point? Um, and then two, how do we make sure it's not a problem? How do, how do we prevent that from becoming a problem? So that's a great question. I think there are, well, first of all, I think, James, you said it. One of the reasons why you don't see the benefit of the renewable electricity costs is because there's a bunch of fossil fuel driving electricity in those utility service areas, right? So so you haven't swapped out the fossil fuel generation for the, for the electricity generation. And if you actually look at, if you look at inflation effects over the last year, um, electricity costs are up. They are up a lot less than gas. They are up, you know, certainly like much, much less than delivered fuels. But the spike in the cost of electricity is largely related to the underlying spike in the cost of fossil fuels that's generating the electricity, right? So whereas the like the overall inflationary effect of electricity over the course of the last couple of decades is more like 3% as opposed to like 12%. So it. So just to say, like the the again back to the choice point, if we invest in the low cost generation of of electricity, we will get the benefit of the low cost of electricity. Having said that, though, there are lots of other things that end up acting as toll gates along the way that increase the price of of renewable power, and in, and in the distributed case is a great example of this. Um, and Saul talks about this all the time. In Australia, rooftop solar is 80 cents a watt installed. <laughs> in France, it's $1.50 a watt installed. Neither of those places have particularly cheap labor vis-a-vis American labor costs. In the U.S., it's $3.50 a watt, $4.50 a watt financed. So now you're dealing with you know a scenario where the, that, that decision is not as attractive as it could otherwise be. And that has a lot to do with with local regulations and other kind of sort of dynamics with PUCs and utilities. And there's no reason for that. It's the same panel. It's the same. You know, the sun's not particularly different. Um, and the you know, and the labor costs associated to putting stuff like our our roofs are not like somehow differently cantilevered than Australian roofs. So it's not like so like much more complicated to put on, you know, a panel here and therefore the labor rate is more expensive. So we have to deal with that stuff. We have to deal with the we have to sort of like attack the cost side of generation to make it compelling and and available and and sort of like the true market price for for electricity um, as a result. And so I am concerned about that. I think it's a I think it is an issue. But again, it's not. It's sort of like and this is like gets back to the beginning point about why to enlist people in the in the climate conversation, because I, I had a, like a, a, a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with somebody in Colorado, a contractor 
who told me the craziest story. It's like stuck with me forever. Where there's in where he did, he's a solar installer, and where he does his solar installations, there is a town line that is basically on a street where one side of the street's one town and the other side of the street's another town. And he told me that the whichever town it is, like on you know on the right side of the street, it's a thousand bucks more to install solar than it is on the left side of the street. And if you just think about that for a second, like <laughs> that's nuts. Like if you if you were if you were the neighbor. Right. And you're like, wait a minute, you're paying a thousand dollars less than I'm paying for the same thing. Like, I would be happy for you, but I would be pretty pissed. Like, I would say, like, well, that's not fair. (laughs) And so I think exposing that to folks about what they should be paying versus what they are paying becomes sort of part of the political conversation that needs the, you know, sort of the political catalyst that needs to happen. Because ultimately, these are consumer taxes that don't need to be levied. So you're saying we need to take it to the streets. Give me my cheap solar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't take it to your neighbor if like your neighbor's doing better, but just like, you know, partner with your neighbor in getting the getting the rules changed. Run some wires, just create a franchise. Yeah, Ooh. right, right, right. Just mooch, mooch some electronics. Rewiring America, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't you don't mind, do you? I just it'll it'll it's cool. I'll just like I'll just you know, we'll just, just be a minute. We'll just oversize yours. Yeah. We'll just oversize yeah. your panels. Yeah. I'll uh, give you my PPA. James is so excited. Yeah. Now we're talking. I'm very excited right now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's like my nightmare, just like wires everywhere. Uh... <laughs> she's, she's very much kidding, by the way. <laughs> I'm not though. Oh man. Um, I love that. Yeah. All right. So, you know, it's funny when we talked yesterday, I was asking, is this narrative something that you've seen, you know, when we're talking about uh, energy independence, stopping inflation, you know, more, better domestic labor, like jobs, whatever, all the, all these kind of talking points, resilience that we've been going through should appeal to, to the Republicans. Right. And so I was asking if this, uh, if you've seen this take with Republicans, if you've, you know, have any expectation or hopes that it would, but unfortunately today it's also, was anyone in mansions here talking about We're not even talking about a Republican and they're getting the inflation narrative wrong, right? So I guess, yeah, I mean, mansion included, but but sort of, do, do you have hopes for this to sort of take hold and, and you start to see a bit a more bipartisan understanding of what we're actually talking about here? I, I mean, I'm a very optimistic person, so so yes, I do. <laughs> um, uh, and, and I'm not gonna get, you know, sort of disabused of my optimism. But I also think that what's gonna end up happening is that, you know, Republicans are like policymakers are going to be consumers of electric machines. They are going to have EVs. They are going to be going through this journey themselves. And I think, and that's not like hypothetical, that's actual. There's no question about that. And so I do think the sort of the experience of that transition is going to be itself helpful to effectuating the transition because policymakers will be participants in it in their own lives. And, you know, the other thing about that is I think there's something about this, which is really about which is really it does tie into Republican narratives and a good way for them to embrace energy, which is to say to reduce local regulatory burden to facilitate people being able to make the choices that they want to take 
make yeah. when it comes to you know where they get their power from and whatever else but also as we were talking about earlier for the u.s to have kind of that in energy independence and ability and so you know we're we're not there now uh, certainly but I, but it doesn't make sense to me that 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 narrative won't pan out because because they themselves will be the beneficiaries of the of the transition. All right. So the the D, call to the DER task force because there's a bunch of businesses out there. You just got to go dirt pill Republicans as some as consumers, right? That, that's actually <laughs> I love that as a as a solution. That'll trickle up from the from to the policymakers, I guess. I I have a friend. That's right. Trickle trickle up politics. I I have a friend who always who always says, and he's not referring to Republicans specifically here, but just people in power. The uh the best thing we could do for like electrification momentum would be for someone to make a really good electric or hydrogen fuel cell yacht, because once that exists, once the once the electrified (laughs) yacht exists, it's like going to be undeniable in that part of the uh part of the political world so i don't know if it's worthy of funding right, we'll get one of those but, out there too yeah we'll do that yeah 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 i love that, that sounds amazing okay ari so you've been named the energy czar of america by us but it's like by us what one no. policy do you pick you only get to implement one policy what do you pick and why but you can do anything. You have like carte blanche. There's no, there's no mansion in this world. <laughs> and there's no like, um, like there's going to be no constitution to anything. I, yeah, no. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, no, the, right, the constitution. Yeah, true czar. True czar. Middle middling things. Supreme Court. Yeah. This isn't. Yeah, this is like a true. Like this is like a Russian czar. Czar, not a. Oh wow, this is nice. Like capital C, like a capital C. Yeah, yes, yes, not Richard Kaufman in New York. Yeah, this is nice. I am upgrading everybody's breaker box and putting outlets, two forty volt outlets, where the where the water heater, furnace, and cooktop are. Every single every single home in America is getting changed over from being a fossil fuel format to an electric format. I love that. And then watch it all happen. It just is going to happen. <laughs> Transform that market. <laughs> I love calling it the home time. OS. That's amazing. Okay, so new breaker box. I did manage to get a heat pump without needing a new breaker box, which I was very excited about. Yes, not everybody will need one, so... You know. Just yeah, PSA to everybody out there. You might not need one. Um, what's your hottest energy take? What does that even mean? It could be like a hot take. Yeah, so like something that's it could be like a controversial thought on energy, or like your the one you're most proud of, like your yeah, your you've, you've got that you're most proud you've got to have like a spicy opinion or two. I I do. Okay. All right. Um. Okay, here's my hot take. I've got a hot take. Carbon offsets. Instead of sending carbon offset dollars to other places for, you know, for example, forestation efforts, we should be bundling those and buying down the cost of heat pumps. They are better climate assets. They are immediate. They actually deliver benefits that people want. Like they do something yeah, other than climate as well. Yeah. Can you can you sell those as carbon offsets? I hope so. Like, 
I don't think there's a market for that currently. Like the carbon cell. I mean, that's like basically carbon trading, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are all like just. But in the micro level. Yeah. Yeah, like why can't I sell my carbon? Yeah, I should be able to like, I bought a heat pump. I should be able to like sell that carbon reduction right. to some business. Uh, that's a good policy right, too. Who, who has that company? Yeah. Someone's going to have that company, right? Now I'm feeling like I got gypped in my, uh, I guess Con Ed yeah. probably got to claim my greenhouse gas reductions with their with their uh, yeah. incentive dollars. That's right. Interesting. Okay. I love that. So to close us out, we have a segment called Dope or Nope. And just to make that very clear, we're going to somewhat rapid fire go through things related to or tangentially related to energy. And you're going to tell us whether you think they're cool, a.k.a. dope, or nope. And you can give us reasoning or you can just not. Up to you. Um, the first one, DERMS, Distributed Energy Resource Management System. I think isn't, do I have to say dope? Okay. Uh, no, 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 you I can don't. think, no, I mean, like, you don't have to. You have to think DERMS are, I think are I'm dope. Gonna... I mean, you don't have to, but you're on the podcast, I, yeah. so. I think, Durs, I think DERMS yeah. are dope, yeah. There's a dope. Yeah. Okay. But what about the management systems of them? <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like I should say dope. I feel like I should say dope. All right. I love it. I think James, this is a James one, US dollar hegemony. <laughs> I slipped that one in there. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying dope, man. I'm not good. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting stuck on that. I'm not, yeah. I'm not high pointing myself on that. I'm going dope. I was trying to, I was trying to trick you. Love yeah. that. Uh, direct air capture. Nope. Not done by unicorns. Okay. <laughs> That's a nope. Davos. Broadly, James, the specific thing about Davos. <laughs> we've just, we've just always wanted to ask that. So. Nope. Nope. That's oh, a nope. yeah. And small, <laughs> small modular nuclear. Uh, Ooh, deep breath. I'm gonna say, I, 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 yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say, nope. <laughs> I dig it. All right. All right. Spicy. I love that. This was a pretty, Spicy yeah, this, this was like a brave segment. You actually went for it. A lot of times people are just like, yeah, oh yeah, good. You. It's good. Yeah. I just I just feel Amazing. like I just feel like there's like quite a lot on the list that we should be going after. So I'm yep. focused on yep. the things that yep. are in the immediate priorities. Yeah. Yep. I get that. I get that. All right. So that is that's the end of Dope or Nope. So thank you. And that's also sort of sort of the end of our time together. So we like always like to close out though, just giving big shouts, also known as just shout outs <laughs> but we call well, them big no, shouts because hey, we think it's more fun hey it's it's not a shout out though it's a big shout right it's different it's it's, 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 it's an it's important slow. distinction yeah um to anyone so and we all we all do it just you can just throw it out there so um i'll kick it off so okay big shouts to rewiring america for advancing a participatory participatory model for climate action that actually gets people excited that they want to do yeah and big shouts that you guys started like two years ago i didn't even realize that that's that's crazy to me like how much good work you guys are already doing yeah it's two years ago almost exactly can we do like no shouts is that a thing do we need no shouts can we do no shouts to, no. to mansion negative shouts <laughs> 
He's in. Wait, this like, is, no, this whispers. Like, yeah. This is supposed to be the op- <laughs> this is supposed to be the optimistic part. No, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, Ari, right. yeah, you got to yeah. give us something. You got to pay us the big shouts task tax here. You got to give us something. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to. Well, big shouts to to you all for this awesome podcast and and bringing people together around all these important topics. And I'm super grateful to be a part of it. But I'm gonna not end there. I'm also giving a big shout in particular to the team at rewiring that has been working their butts off for the last 18 months on these climate provisions and has been putting in thousands of hours to make that a reality and so what i just say is that you know this has been a hard pill for folks to swallow but it's also the result is we've created the response to the to to the fossil fuel sort of incumbency so i think we'll 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 win in the end that was a lengthy big shot. Uh, that's a, that was a good one. That's a great. That that's was, a great place to I end on. That. I think too. Awesome. So Ari, like, this is this is fun. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you <laughs> for hanging out with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, let's talk in a year when America's just cranking out heat pumps, exporting them all over the world. <laughs> just yeah. heat pump <laughs> producer. It's like, yeah, it's all it's all it's all done. <laughs> Yeah, when it's all done, yeah, we'll just meet on the beach and hang out and talk about how easy this was. Thanks, Ari, for your great takes on the industry. We all look forward to seeing what's next at Rewiring America. My favorite part of the episode was how Ari simplified what we all need to do by saying it's just upgrading billions of machines. No biggie. Make sure you're all subscribed to our newsletter at DERtaskforce.com. And don't forget about DirtFest coming up in a few short months. Get your tickets today, as this will be something you won't want to miss. Lastly, our Twitter account has been released to anyone in the community with a hot take or just a pointed meme. So keep shaking things up DER style. Talk and tweet to you all soon.